0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger, The Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Doc Lindsey. Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madam Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstrap Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Here on the Pirate History Podcast, we've talked quite a bit about pirates robbing other people. It's kind of the crux of the whole show. But we really haven't talked about when pirates themselves get robbed. There have been a few occasions in which a crew was denied plunder that they felt they deserved a portion of. Henry Morgan had issues like that with the French under his command at one point. Henry Avery denied the Pearl a portion of the Gunsway Prize, because the Pearl didn't actually do any fighting. And last time, the Pelican was cut out of the treasure from the great Muhammad, We've also seen plunder get confiscated by the authorities several times, but that doesn't quite fit the bill of a robbery. Have we ever seen a pirate get robbed? I'm talking about a taste of their own medicine, you know, really robbed, maybe even violently. Well, today we will. After their raid on the Great Mohammed, the Pirates of the Mocha, under Captain Culliford, and the Pirates formerly of the Soldado, under Captain Dirk Chivers, they made their way back to St. Mary's Island. When they arrived, the Pirates began to take a proper inventory of their treasure, and it turned out to be a lot. And I mean, like, a lot. We'll get to that in a minute. It would take a few days for the pirate quartermasters and accountants to finally tally up everything. In the meantime, the men had some cash to spend and they were back at Edward Quelch's trading post at St. Mary's so they could relax a little bit. One of the men bought a jug of good strung Madeira wine and took one of the Malagasy women to a nearby orange grove. I kind of suspect it wasn't actually an orange grove, at least not as we would understand an orange. Oranges aren't native to Madagascar, and the sweet orange, you know, a modern orange, well, at the time it was still a pretty rare and expensive fruit. They were grown in Spain, you know, the Valencia orange, after the Moors had introduced them there, and Louis Fourteenth had a huge indoor orange grove. And they were beginning to take off in Spanish America, but an orange grove was a huge expense. It would be a surprise if anyone had shelled out that money to start an orange grove. But one of the genetic precursors to the modern sweet orange did grow in Madagascar. That's the pomelo. I picture this pirate, with his jug of wine and his beautiful Malagasy companion, who is about to be violently robbed... I picture him in a pomelo grove. He's got his belt knife out, cutting slices of the fruit and feeding them to his friend. And then they appear from the trees. A few minutes later, that Malagasy woman shows up at the pirate camp down near the beach, and she's screaming about this pirate getting attacked. You know, he needs help. Come quickly. His friends and his comrades, they grab their swords and they rush off to help. And they can hear him screaming in the distance. He's clearly fighting here. They rush into the trees, swords drawn, clearly ready for a fight. And when they get to him, his friends, these hardened pirates, all fall down laughing. This pirate is being attacked by lemurs. They'd been attracted by the fresh-cut fruit, but also, maybe even more so, they were attracted to the wine. Lemurs are one of a number of species of small monkey that really, really love wine, and the stronger the better. This is backed up by a fairly recent study at Dartmouth, but it's the sort of thing that people who lived with these monkeys have known for centuries. If you have wine, lock it up or the lemurs will get it. So the pirate was fine. You know, he may have had some minor scratches, and the lemurs did get away with his jug of wine, but he wasn't hurt. This period of idleness was peaceful for the pirates. They had wine and women and money. But that all ended when a ship from the Royal Navy appeared in the harbour. This is episode 186, They Have Built a Gallows. Originally, today's episode was going to be titled, Culliford Leaves Paradise and Flirts with Hell. That's the title of the chapter in The Pirate Hunter by Richard Zacks that tells this story. It's a great title, and it's a great chapter. I really have to give Zacks credit for giving this story life and color. Most of these facts can be found in admiralty court documents, but they're a little bit black and white. It was Richard Zacks that brought it to life. The Mocha and the Great Mohammed returned to St. Mary's near the end of 1698, and the men were in a jubilant mood. They didn't yet know how much they had taken in the raid, but they knew it was a ton of money. When they arrived at the harbor, the pirates found another ship was already there. It was a smallish frigate, in good shape, flying English colors. That may have been a bit alarming, but not overly so. See, getting into the harbor at St. Mary's was tricky. There were a lot of obstacles in your path, including some ships that had been burned just under the waterline. If you did not know your way in, a ship of that size would probably not be able to make it, so... She had to be familiar with the place. Even more, though, the pirates had over one hundred big guns between them. This was a sleek little frigate, but she couldn't stand up to that. As soon as Culliford and Dirk Chivers disembarked, though, everything was cleared up. Edward Quelch had a little warehouse near the docks where he conducted his business. There was also a bunkhouse for he and his men and the old brothel built by Adam Baldridge that was a mostly open-air establishment and it's worth pointing out that it wasn't run by edward quelch now it was run by the women who worked there they had rules and codes of conduct for the brothel but it still brought in plenty of business for edward quelch normally he had a few men around to do the lifting and guard the warehouse but When Culliford and Shivers showed up at his warehouse, the place was buzzing with activity. That ship belonged to Giles Shelley. He's been around our story a few times, usually here at St. Mary's. He ran a regular trade between New York, Madagascar, Charleston, and the port from which his ship received its name, Nassau. I don't want to uh, beat a dead horse here, but... It bears repeating every once in a while that what we're seeing here with the Pirates of the Round are really the roots of what's going to happen at Nassau in about 15 years. It's a worldwide criminal syndicate that involves illegal slave trading and piracy and smuggling goods into places like Boston and London. It's a criminal syndicate built specifically to get around some of those royally chartered monopolies like the Royal Africa Company or the East India Company. It's hard to say exactly how high up this conspiracy goes, but it involved some very important people. Maybe even some of the so-called Whig Yonto. Those are the three or sometimes four most powerful Whigs in England. The men... Most implicated with this pirate round affair was Charles Montague, who just so happened to be married to the widow of the late Duke of Albemarle, with whom he would have a child who was going to marry the son of John and Sarah Churchill. We're talking about extremely powerful people that are loosely tied into this pirate conglomerate. The exact same people who, when the War of Spanish Succession breaks out in about a year, are really going to be pushing for England to enter the war. Giles Shelley was one of the foot soldiers of this operation, one of those pirate-adjacent merchant sailors who made the whole pirate round possible. Buying goods from the pirates, and really Edward Quelch, was a big part of his business, but he also sold goods to the pirates at an insane markup. First and foremost, Giles Shelley carried casks filled with strong Madeira wine. He even set up a little waterfront bar where he sold bottles of wine to the pirates at exorbitant prices. That's where our Pomelo Grove pirate bought the wine that lured in the lemurs. Dr. Bradenham, the former surgeon of the Adventure Galley, said once, quote, sold liquors out of the said shed. I often went thither to drink. Richard Zacks gives a more full accounting of what Giles Shelley carried on board. He writes, Shelley's outward-bound bill of lading from New York City listed 250 gallons of Madeira wine, 28 casks of rum, two casks of clay pipes, eight chests full of pistols, 16 half-barrels of gunpowder, and all kinds of European goods, such as combs, scissors, shirts, Pants, shoes, hats. The absence of tobacco is easily explained. He bought it cheap from the Indians on Long Island and skipped paying the export duty. End quote. Tobacco, though, wasn't the only thing those pirates wanted the pipes for. Any merchant worth their salt, a private merchant at least, and especially of this less reputable sort they carried on board a decent haul of cannabis and opium. I mean, if you've got a ship and you know you're making a stop at the Pirate Haven here on St. Mary's Island and you're not carrying some drugs, I mean, what are you doing? You're losing money. But the pirates were pretty set up here. They could buy a whole zebu from the Malagasy people at about two pieces of eight for the entire animal. Zebu are those Madagascar cattle. They could spice the meat with nutmeg and pepper. On the side, they could have Malagasy rice, Madeira wine, and maybe a bit of mango, not to mention a beautiful companion with whom to enjoy it all. Every evening was filled with bonfires on the beach and musicians playing the fiddle and the guitar. There was singing and dancing, not to mention one of the big draws of being back on land, the men got to have a bath. Thanks to Giles Shelley and his supplies, they could have a shave and a haircut. Two bits. In fact, their companions, the Malagasy women, probably insisted upon a shave, a haircut, and a bath. And the men, they looked good. Richard Zacks says, quote, Shelley also catered to the fashion-conscious outlaw. He sold them flouncy hats and one-size-fits-all shoes. As for the pants and shirts, he sold them needles and colored thread so that they could tailor the stolen silks and madeiras and calico. Many of the men now decked themselves in colorful, if not always a color-coordinated way. End quote. When Adam Baldridge abandoned St. Mary's Island, I said that Libertalia was no more, but Hearing what this was like for the men returning from the expedition against the great Muhammad, while it all sounds pretty... liberating. I'm not sure that if I were in that position, I would ever want to leave. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. where every episode uncovers the untold stories and secrets nestled in the streets and alleys of our own backyards. We bring history to life, revealing the extraordinary and the ordinary from local legends to forgotten tales that shape the communities we know today. Tune in to Hometown History and embark on a journey through time right from where you are. Some of the men did want to leave, though. Roughly half the assembled pirates chose to return home aboard the Nassau when Giles Shelley set sail. This became especially pressing when the plunder was finally tallied up. Nearly all the trade goods were sold off to Giles Shelley or Edward Quelch. All of the fabrics, dyes, you know, the usual stuff, and probably some coffee. In the end, the great Muhammad proved to be the greatest prize taken during the era of the pirate round. It was more than double what Henry Avery and his fleet had captured with the Ganji Sawai. And do you think that this would be a bigger deal for the authorities? It really wasn't, though. We'll get to that next time. For now, every pirate here on St. Mary's Island, around 300 of them, when all was said and done, they earned about 600 pounds. Now that's not retirement money. According to the Bank of England inflation calculator, that would be worth today 82,000 pounds, which isn't bad, but not enough to retire. According to the British National Archives and their purchasing power guide, 600 pounds sterling in 1698 could buy 111 horses, or it's equal to about 6,666 days' wages for a skilled laborer. Think a cooper or a skilled sailor. 6,666 days is equivalent to, when you take into account saints' days and holidays, it's equivalent to about 20 years. So these men had made some good money. It was more than enough to buy a good-sized farm or a pub or maybe even a couple of ships with which to start a legitimate merchant trading fleet. For the men who returned to America with Giles Shelley, they had a world of opportunities open to them, as long as they managed to stay under the radar of the authorities. Just a few days before the Nassau prepared to depart, Samuel Burgess arrived aboard his ship the Margaret. Burgess goes way back with Cutlass Cullifer. They were both mutineers against Captain Kidd way back in 1688 on the Blessed William. And Burgess has been around, engaging in some Red Sea piracy during this story. But now he was one of those pirate-adjacent merchant types, and he was here much like Giles Shelley do trade with the pirates, but he had some news. He told all of these pirates that, quote, they have built a gallows, at New York to hang people such as you. End quote. He's talking about Lord Bellamont here. His news was that New England was no longer the friendly place it once had been. It was daunting news. But these men who wanted to go home, they weren't going to be put off. They did, however, decide to arm themselves. Those two crates of pistols and all of those half-barrels of gunpowder, they sold immediately. The crowning jewel of these, a pair of silver-plated pistols, went to Captain Dirk Chivers. They bought up any shot or knives or axes, and every one of the pirates, every single one of them, bought a cutlass. Which is, if you ask me, a very good idea. With that, though, the Nassau departed for America. The pirates would have had to sneak into New York City, but more likely they disembarked before the Nassau arrived at New York. Maybe they even disembarked at Nassau. I don't have any details on this. The pirates probably used false names and did everything they could to stay under the radar. But most of them left their lives of crime behind. They started farms. Maybe they established some orchards. They opened taverns. They, you know, they weren't pillars of the community. They weren't captains of industry. But they did contribute to the local economies of a ton of cities around the English-speaking world. What they had was an infusion of cash and the ability to buy and trade goods that all of these remote cities would have wanted. So even if a local governor or a magistrate suspected, you know, they're probably a pirate. Where do you think they got that Arabian gold? They likely didn't complain too loudly. On the other hand, half of the pirates chose to stay at Libertalia. And who could blame them? You could build a little house, maybe. You could plant some oranges if you so chose. And some of them got married. A lot of these pirates married Malagasy women. And then there were the pirates with lifestyles that would have been frowned upon back in the civilized world. Robert Culliford... Cutlass Culliford may have been gay. One of the men who had been imprisoned with Captain Culliford, John Swan, a man who took part in the capture of the mocha frigate, was, quote, a great consort of Culliford's who lived with him, end quote. This has led to speculation they may have been gay, but I think it's more complicated than that. See, both Robert Culliford and John Swan took wives, at least Two wives apiece, in fact. That was pretty common here on St. Mary's. So they've got this household where these two men, who were probably in some form of matiolage together, for they each had at least a couple of wives living with them. And Culliford, as captain of this pirate crew, well, he was kind of a... Richard Zacks calls him a little king. They had regular ships arriving with tobacco and booze and books and cooking oil and anything they might need to live on this tropical paradise, a place with no kings or governors or priests or tax collectors. Cutlass Culliford was living a life that he would have been unable to find anywhere in the civilized world. But St. Mary's was remote. It could get a little bit boring. You know, he had everything he could ever need, but anybody who's ever had everything they could ever need will tell you that, well, that's not everything. Culliford and Swan lived on St. Mary's Island with all of their wives for about a year. They, all of the pirates, in fact, ingratiated with the Malagasy people. They began to take part in their religious ceremonies. And for the couple of pirates that died during that year, they honored them in the Malagasy fashion. It was all very nice, but some of the pirates were beginning to miss cities and people and a a more vibrant life. That included Robert Culliford and John Swan. But going home wouldn't be as easy as sailing into New York on a stolen East India Company ship, asking them to just forget about the piracy. Robert Culliford is not as wanted or notorious as he should have been, but make no mistake, he was wanted and notorious. Although, it actually would have been pretty easy to wander into most cities in the English-speaking world and ask them to forget about the piracy. In 1698, King William promulgated an act of grace offering a pardon to any pirate in the world, excepting Henry Every and William Kidd. Lord Bellamont would not have honored that, because... Well, he didn't, but anyone else probably would have. Carolina, the Bahamas, Jamaica, Rhode Island even. Robert Culliford could have probably sailed in, accepted a pardon, and lived anywhere that Lord Bellamont was not in charge. And they knew about this pardon. It's not like it was a secret. Giles Shelley certainly had news of it. Samuel Burgess absolutely did. I'm sure that the men who went home with Giles Shelley had that as a bit of a backup plan, just in case they could always accept the pardon. But if they did, they probably wouldn't get to keep the money. And Robert Culliford really liked his money. So they stayed on St. Mary's Island. They were kind of stuck. But then Providence intervened. I say Providence, but to use Richard Zack's word, hell arrived on board a ship. His name was Thomas Warren. Now, it's not that Thomas Warren, not Commodore Warren, who's been something of a foil to William Kidd. This was his nephew. We might call him Thomas Warren the Younger, but I'll just call him Captain Warren. Captain Warren sailed into the harbor at St. Mary's Island in the autumn of 1699 on board a small pink one of those coastal skimmers that's a bit smaller than a sloop, but larger than a pinnace. It's not a huge imposing warship, but as we said, huge imposing warships really couldn't make it into St. Mary's Harbor without prior knowledge. The pink, however, made it fine. The man who had been quartermaster on board the adventure galley, John Walker, took a boat out to meet with Captain Warren on board this pink. And the captain had some pretty momentous news. He was on a mission from his uncle, Commodore Thomas Warren of the Royal Navy, to deliver pardons from the king to the pirates of St. Mary's Island. The Act of Grace of 1698 had actually expired, and the year that these pirates had been living there. But the king made a special dispensation for these particular pirates, and one of these pirates in particular. This was big news, so John Walker took his boat, and the news and a messenger from Captain Warren back to the island. That messenger climbed out of the boat, cleared his throat, and declaimed, Hear ye, hear ye. There were about half a dozen pirates lazing around the beach, drinking wine punch, fooling around with their wives, and none of them even bothered to look up. Whatever this stuffy, wig-wearing, buckles-on-his-shoop-kind-of-fop had to say, well, he didn't have a sword, so no one listened. John Walker, though, well, he rushed up the hill to reach Captain Culliford. Culliford and Swan were both a bit skeptical of this news. At first, they thought Walker might be babbling or drunk, or maybe he'd lost his mind, but once he convinced them that there was a pink in the harbor, Captain Culliford began to suspect it might be a trap. Were they trying to lure him out to capture him with promise of a pardon? Still, though, if there was even a chance it was true, he had to try. That evening... Cutlass Culliford cleaned up. All of his wives gathered together to bathe him, to shave him, to give him a haircut. And he pulled out his finest outfit. I'm imagining all of those colorful calicoes and silks. The following morning, Robert Culliford, along with John Swan and John Walker, they got dressed, combed their hair, and strapped on their swords. They also collected their whole household, all of their wives, a couple of them now carrying children at this point. And these women, they were wearing their absolute best. You know, you should check out traditional Malagasy clothing. Google it. They have these vivid, flowing dresses that come in a rainbow of colors. They wear their hair in these crazy, intricate braided patterns, and the women all paint their faces. They use a kind of a gold base paint. They say it's to protect from the sun, but then they paint these intricate little flowers or sometimes stars or spiral patterns. It's beautiful. But imagine that you are Captain Warren, and this is the party that comes out to meet you. A pair of pirates dressed up like Oriental kings, along with a retinue of young beautiful, wildly-dressed Malagasy women. I wonder if there were any men on board that crew who thought, you know what, I'm in the wrong business, because that looks all right. It must have been dazzling. Captain Warren greeted Captain Cullerford warmly. He informed him that he had in his possession 20 pardons for the men of St. Mary's. Culliford could distribute them as he saw fit, but there was one condition. Robert Culliford had to accept one of the pardons, and then he had to sail with Captain Warren for London. I imagine that Culliford was nervous about this, but it turned out that the Crown had a favor to ask of him. Captain Warren produced one of those pardons for Captain Culliford. Now, Culliford could read... And he did, and this pardon looked very real. So the two men went down into the captain's cabin, where they shared a glass of fine wine, and Captain Warren explained the details. Culliford had information that the crown required. He would have to testify in a most high-profile pirate trial. The implication here is that it was the forthcoming trial of Captain William Kidd. If, however, he was willing to testify, according to the High Lord of the Admiralty, who was one of those whig junto members I mentioned earlier, they said, quote, We shall not only give them pardon, but offer rewards. They were talking about giving them a pardon. Inviting him back into society, maybe granting him a commission from the king to go do his pirate thing, but against the king's enemies. And first, among these rewards, they would be allowed to keep the money. I don't imagine that Robert Culliford had to think too hard. He shook hands with Captain Warren and accepted the pardon. Captain Warren turned it over, made a note that this had been granted to Captain Robert Culliford, and then he handed it over. Captain Culliford would keep this pardon on his person for years to come. Next time, we're going to discuss Captain Culliford's voyage home, and we're going to get into some of the politics here, because a lot of people were very, very upset about this decision, a decision to pardon notorious pirate captain Robert Culliford. That included a number of politicians in England. Lord Bellamont didn't like it, but even bigger than that was the Ottoman Empire and the East India Company. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit-Down, a Mafia history podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly can do so at brillig.com.au. That's b-r-i-l-l-i-g.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.